Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes Why Easter Matters, Why You Should Reject the Bible, and You War with Demons. Enjoy. It's Easter morning and we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Now in the Bible, we already have historical accounts of many people being raised from the dead. So what's one more resurrection? On top of that, why does it matter to us that this God-man Jesus rose from the dead? Death is the unnatural separation of body and soul. It's not a part of life, it's not a part of nature, it's not a part of creation. It's a consequence. Adam and Eve were told that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. God warned them that the consequences of sin would be death. But death did not exist in creation until sin. Because of sin, death entered into the world. But before that, Mankind, Adam and Eve, were as God intended, undying creatures. Now, throughout history, from Adam and Eve, death kind of reigned. Death continued to take life here and there. And it was a pattern that continued. It was something where people would live to a certain age, and then something would kill them. And they could be young, they could be old, it could be disease, it could be war, it could be famine, it could be any number of things. But Death and taxes were the only two inevitable things, basically. It was this pattern that continued. A person, even if a person was raised from the dead, we have examples in the Old Testament, for example, of people being raised from the dead. Even in these cases, the people were raised, and then eventually they died again. Their body returned to the earth. Their body returned to the dust from which it was formed. And this is the pattern that continues all the way through until the New Testament. And this is, this is where we're coming up on Easter. God dies on the cross. Christ dies on the cross on Good Friday. And Mary and Mary and Salome, the, but the women who are going to the tomb in Mark, they all expected this pattern to continue. They expected the pattern of people dying to continue. Well, death had so far been an incurable disease. It had been something that people couldn't, couldn't reverse. And even in those special situations where God brought someone back from the dead, they would end up dying again. So they expected this pattern to continue, that this Christ who died on the cross would still be dead. Now, of course, as you know the story, they go to the tomb and they find it, they find it empty. Well, or these women, they find uh, that Christ is gone, and uh, an angel there basically explains to them, he's like, yeah, you're, you know, Jesus of Nazareth has, has risen, uh, you know. Uh, and this is completely, this is a, this is a shock to them. This is, this is a change in the pattern. And this is particularly special because Jesus is later called the firstborn of the dead. This isn't just a resurrection where he would be brought back by someone else, like a prophet or an apostle. Uh, but this was a resurrection where Christ brought himself back from the dead. The, 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 the strength of death was not enough to hold Christ. The sting of death 
was ineffective to keep him down. It was no longer a permanent condition. Christ broke free from death as the firstborn of the dead. Now, being the firstborn of the dead, this then means that there's going to be others that will follow. Christ as the firstborn from the dead means that later on, other Christians would rise in the same way. Now, this resurrection of Christ isn't just one where it was his soul, you know, and, and then his body remained on the earth, but his soul resurrected and went to heaven. Rather, this was a resurrection of body and soul. This is the resurrection that we have to look forward to as Christians. Remember, Christ had his hands and his feet and his side pierced, but these were not the only wounds that were inflicted on him. He was flayed and whipped and beaten to the point where people could not even recognize him as a human being. That's how he's described in scripture. That they could not even they could not even recognize his form as a human. And yet in the Gospel of John, we read Mary Magdalene encounters Christ in the garden tomb, and she thinks he's a gardener. She doesn't mistake him for some victim of torture is bleeding out all over the place, but she just thinks he's a gardener. And, I mean, this was, uh, you know, Christ had just been beat. It's not like he had time for the wounds to heal naturally, but he had just been beaten and flayed and, you know, pierced and all this other, you know, brutality inflicted on him. And Mary sees him and she thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's just some dude. And this is, this is the kind of healing that we can look forward to, this resurrection of the body. It's not like Christ rose from the dead and he was like a zombie with his skin falling off because he'd just been, you know, beaten to death and tortured and everything like that. But rather, Christ rose from the dead and then he was fine. His, his body was, was functioning. His body was, was glorified. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is the promise that we have for ourselves, that God will raise our bodies on the last day in the resurrection and he will glorify them. We won't have to worry about illness and, and, and any sort of afflictions anymore. We won't have to worry about, you know, sore joints or arthritis. We won't have to worry about, you know, poor vision or hearing that, you know, hard of hearing. We won't have to worry about any of these afflictions anymore, any of these things that we suffer from in this life. Because when God raises us from the dead in our body, he heals us. He perfects us. He gives us immortal, he gives us immortality of the body. And it doesn't explain in the Bible exactly how this happens. You know, what will it be like somebody who loses an arm or somebody who dies when they're very young? How will their bodies look in the resurrection? We're not sure, but we do know that when Christ brings us back, when Christ raises the dead, he raises the body and the soul. He raised, and if the soul's already in heaven, then he raises the body and rejoins it with the soul. So it's this wonderful promise that we have to look forward to. This is why the death and the resurrection of Christ on Easter is so important. It's not the same as the other resurrections where someone came back from the dead and then returned to the earth later. This is a resurrection where Christ defeated death and came out of the grave immortal, came out of the grave incapable of being hurt again, incapable of dying again, and then being called the firstborn of the dead because you Christians are guaranteed that same sort of resurrection. This is why it matters. This is why Easter matters. Because this is a preview of the resurrection that's in store for you. Anyone who has faith and trusts in the work of Christ on the cross to forgive their sins, the death of Christ and propitiation from their, for their sins, anyone who has faith in that, they have that guarantee of eternal life and that perfected glorified body, free from sickness, free from malady. That's the promise of the resurrection. And that's the guarantee that we find in Easter. I hope you enjoy it.
Why should you reject the Bible? You should reject the Bible if, and only if, it's false. Seems like a simple enough premise, but let's get into it. This topic comes up as a result of multiple issues, actually. The first issue is this. There are those who look at the Bible and they say, well, this is God's word, sure. I believe that it's true, but I don't like what it says. I don't like what it says about sin, forgiving my brother, sex before marriage, woman's ordination. Pick your controversial biblical topic and someone will say, I don't like what it says about this thing. It, it, it. It does not matter. It does not matter if you like it. It matters if it's true or not. If the Bible is true, then it is God's word. And what God's word says trumps what you feel. That's, that's just reality for you. If it is real, if it is true, if it is actual, if it is genuine, then it should and ought to be believed and followed. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It is understandable that there are some things in the Bible that people will approach and say, this just doesn't vibe, man. This does not go along with what I want in life, with what I think about who I am or who God is or who my neighbor is or what I should do or when I should forgive or, or what a sin is. It's understandable. You feel these things. You don't have a perfect heart. You don't have a perfect understanding of the entire universe and God and sin and all of these other great things. And the Bible gives you this information that conflicts with what you feel and what you desire. And that conflict is real. But that conflict is won by God. It is won by truth. If the Bible is true, then it doesn't matter what you feel about it. You are obligated to believe truth. You are obligated to act according to the truth of the Bible. You have no excuse to reject the Bible unless it is false. That being said, issue number two is this. If the Bible is false, if the Bible is not trustworthy, if the, the historical accounts of the Bible are not true, then you can't just cherry pick. You can't like you're going to a buffet and you're saying, "Hmm, well, I really like the mu the uh, you know the mushroom stir fry and uh, yeah, the broccoli." You can't. You don't pick and choose. This comes up a lot with with Jesus. People will look at Jesus and say, "Well, Jesus is a wonderful teacher. He taught you know love and compassion, all of these other good things that Jesus didn't did in fact teach." But they'll take the teachings of Jesus. They'll take some of the teachings of Jesus usually. And they'll say, well, I want to keep these teachings, but I don't want to keep these, these parts of the Bible that talk about these historical claims about creation or the flood or, 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 or Moses and Egypt and the Red Sea and, and the miracles and the virgin birth and the, and the resurrection. You know, the, the, it's usually the miracles and the, and, the, um, and the stuff that God does that nobody else can do that people say, mm, I want to push that aside and say that's not historical. The problem is you can't look at Jesus and then say, okay, well, the historical claims about Jesus and the historical claims that Jesus himself makes are all false, but his teachings are true. It's not possible. And I'll tell you why it's not possible. Because Jesus' moral teachings are based on the historicity that he claims, the historicity of Scripture, which he claims as God's word. He claims as Scripture. He claims as the teachings of God through the prophets, 
and then later through the apostles and the evangelists. These things are, according to Jesus, God's word. These things taught in scripture, these things that say the, the, the entire universe was created in six days, or that there was a worldwide flood and it covered all of the mountains and everything like that, or that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery, fiery furnace and came out unscathed. These things are historical claims, and Jesus says that they are true, therefore, here are the moral imperatives that I'll give you. Here are the moral teachings to love one another, to, 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 to love God, um, uh, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The historical claim is, is, is the foundation. The historicity is a foundation for the moral claim that goes on top of it. Jesus claims to be God. He does every time he makes an I am statement, an ego I me statement, or, or uh, claims to be the son of man, or he references Psalm 110. He claims to be God a lot of times. So let me get into that. It'll be a different thing. He claims to be God, and based on his claim that he is God, he talks about things like the moral law. God alone has, has the authority to, to make and implement a moral law. The Ten Commandments, for example, those came from God, right? The only reason that they were able to be implemented in the first place is because, because God says, guess what? I made you, and this is how you were supposed to live. Well, Jesus, claiming to be God, then claims these are the moral laws that you should follow. This is how you should act morally with one another. You can't go and say, well, Jesus is not God, but I'm going to take everything that he claims as a moral imperative, and I'm going to say that that's true and that that should be followed. It does not follow. If Jesus is not God, for example, if Jesus is not God, he does not have the authority to make that moral claim. If the historical accounts of the Bible are not true, then you cannot then hold on to the moral imperatives. You cannot follow the teachings of Jesus while rejecting the authority that he has to teach them in the first place. You can't say, well, Jesus isn't God, but he taught some good things. No. If he's not God, he doesn't have the authority to teach these things. And then the people who come afterwards, the, the, the epistles that are written, they're just explaining what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, all these commands that came from God. These are not, Paul does not invent these new laws later on. James does not invent these new things later on. They are teaching what God taught, what God taught as Jesus and what God taught through the prophets of the Old Testament. So, to reiterate, you should reject the Bible and the teachings of Jesus if they are false. It doesn't matter how easy it makes your life. It doesn't matter how easy it makes you to fit into society because we all get along and have the same ethical code. None of that matters if it's not true. It doesn't matter how effective a lie is. If a lie is a lie, then you reject it. If it is not true, you reject it. If the Bible is not true, that and only that is why you should reject it. If, however, and it is. If, however, the Bible is true, then you have an intellectual imperative to say, yes, this is true. And because this is true, I will act as though it is true. If the Bible's claims are true, if the historical claims that Jesus bases his teachings on are true, then you have a moral obligation to follow his moral claims. If he is God, then he does have the authority to tell you how to live even if it doesn't agree with your own notion of right and wrong. So yeah, it's a simple 
simple idea, but it's easy to look at it and say, well, I, I'm going to make an excuse here. I'm going to make an excuse there. If the Bible is false, don't follow it. Don't follow this Jesus character. If the Bible is true and it is true, then follow it, believe it, learn it, study it, inscribe it spiritually on your heart and, and let it be a guide for how you view your neighbor and how you view yourself, how you view God and sin and forgiveness and everything. Again, I feel like I have to keep saying this, but the Bible is true. Someone's not going to watch this video. They're going to say, oh, ha ha, look at this clickbait title. I'm going to totally fall for it and say, well, the Bible is true. I'm not saying the Bible is false. I'm saying that if the Bible is false, that's the only reason you should reject it. That's all I'm saying, right? I'm not saying anything controversial, except that the Bible is true, and that is controversial enough for some people. So, I hope I made my point. Um, God bless you, and have a wonderful Christmas. Christian combatives, huh? I don't know about all this fighting stuff. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Well, if you're a Christian, you need to prepare for battle, because you're already at war. Let's get into it. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if it were something out of the ordinary. And Jesus says, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogues. You're going to be put to death. You're going to be killed by people who think that they are doing God's will by killing you. The reality is that Christians are at war. This is a spiritual war. But there are physical components to this war as well. And not, this is not me saying that there needs to be a, a physical Christian war like a crusade. But this is me saying that the world around us the sinful world, the secular world around us, is employing physical measures to persecute, to insult, and to put to death Christians. This is what I told my congregation this morning. I asked, who in the congregation is a, is a father or a mother? You know, the two types of parents. Who's a father and a mother? You guys are going to be persecuted for your faith. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be treated with derision. You're going to have people look down their nose at you. You're going to be denied services. You're going to be treated like a horrible person for your faith. And you're going to be treated even more awful for teaching your children that faith. And your children, they're going to be going to prison. They are going to be imprisoned for their faith. And their children, they're going to be put to death. See, Christian combatives isn't just a cute name. The reality is that the church militant, that's us when we're here on the earth, the church militant is at war. There is a spiritual war. But the physical world is waging war on us as well. This, the, the demonic world is waging war on us too. The reality is that persecution is Christian history. That is how it has almost always been throughout Christian history. You can think of the great bastions of Christianity. When Christianity is first starting out, you had, you know, the Christians living alongside the Jews in, in, in Roman-controlled areas. And then what happened? You had the Colosseums. You had Nero lighting up Christians like torches to light the, light the roads. You had the crucifixions. 
Christians were persecuted and put to death, fed to lions, stuff like that. Like, okay, well, that was just the beginning of the church, right? Well, how did it go since then? Wasn't there a Christian Holy Land at one point? What about, what about, you know, Constantinople? What about Jerusalem? When the Muslims came in, the Turks, the Mohammedans, they came in and they took over and they slaughtered and they enslaved and they took over the Holy Land, the Christian Holy Land, right? They thought they were above, above that, beyond that. What about Germany? You had Martin Luther, you know, the, the famed reformer Martin Luther. He wasn't the only theologian there. There was a rich history of Christian belief in Germany. How did that work out in the 1930s and 1940s? Hmm? What about the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox? What happened during the USSR? How did they treat the Christians? How did they treat the Christians in Estonia, for example, Latvia, Lithuania? Did they treat them well? Oh, well, that's just the past. That's just the past. We are not currently being persecuted. We're not. That's just something that happens to other people in the past. There's no way that that can happen to, to us Christians now. Really? Really? So, in the Western world, in Europe, are people being arrested for saying the wrong things? Are people being put in prison for preaching against homosexuality? Or for saying that transgenderism goes against God's design of men and women and that it's not a real thing? Are people being persecuted for hate speech? Are people being persecuted and put in prison because they hold a service in Canada and they're supposed to be quarantined and not meeting together? This is real. This is happening. You, Christian, cannot just look at this and say, oh, well, the history of the Christian church, we're past that now. The world is, is more peaceful, evolved. It's not as barbaric. We don't have to worry about people persecuting us. Christian, you are at war. You are at war. You are called the church militant because you are at war. People want to kill you. People hate you because they hate Christ. They hate you because you love Christ. And most of all, they hate you because Christ loves you. You are at war whether you like it or not. And people will try to hurt you. People will try to silence you. People will try to imprison you. And people will try to kill you. And just in case you think, well, but we've still got the majority here. Think about that for a moment. Think about your closest allies. Think about those who claim to be Roman Catholic, for an example, and are in political office, your senators, vice presidents and presidents, Roman Catholic, and yet they support abortion and homosexuality. These people who claim the mantle of Christian, of Catholic, are nothing like that. They are not on your side. They are not fighting for your for your right to believe, your right to worship your savior. What about those who claim to be Lutheran? What about somebody who claims to be Lutheran, becomes a Lutheran bishop? I'm talking about the ELCA here. Someone who claims to be a Lutheran bishop and is transgender. Are they, are they promoting Christian identity, Christian ideals? They claim to be on your side, but you know what? They're not. What about those Anglican Baptists those Presbyterian, Methodists, you know, all those people who, who, 
who want to create safe spaces on their campus and in their churches for other religions to worship. They remove crosses and crucifixes. So Muslims won't be offended to come into their space and share a space and worship with them. Because Muslims would be offended to see this Christ on a cross. What these people, are they your allies? No. No, they're not. The reality is that you are at war. And Christ and the angels and the Christians are your allies. And there are many people who would claim to follow Christ, who would claim to be a Christian, who would claim, who, who would claim to be on your side and not. You're at war. Men, women, children, and demons all oppose you. The entire world opposes you. The secular world opposes you. Everyone of every other religion on this planet opposes you. They will fight you. They will try to kill you. They will try to kill the Christian church. They will try to wage war against Christ himself. And they will fail. That's, that's the reality. You are called to rejoice in these persecutions. You are called to rejoice when someone insults you for being a Christian, when somebody insults you in the name of Christ. You are told to count that as a blessing, to rejoice in that, because you are sharing in Christ's suffering. Because at the end of the day, you're at war, but it's not about you. It's about Christ. You suffer because Christ suffered before you. But here's the thing. You can rejoice because you know how this battle ends. In fact, the last blow was already struck on Good Friday on that cross. That was when sin and the devil were defeated. And on Easter morning, when Christ rose out of that tomb, that's when death itself was defeated. So you are actually free as a Christian to rejoice in this battle, even though it seems like it's ongoing. It's already won. You're already a victor. So what can these people do to you? What can these demons do to you? What can these people who oppose Christianity do to you? Insult you? Insult you for, for being like Christ? Well, thank you for the compliment. I'm glad that you, that you compare me with Christ. Are you going you gonna to imprison me? You're going to take some armed guards and, and haul me off in the middle of the night? Wow, way to make me more like Christ. Thank you. You're going to kill me? You're going to put me to death? Oh, is that the worst you can do is to send me home to my Lord? Wow, pathetic, pathetic. The worst thing that the enemies of Christendom can do, the worst misery, as much as it is suffering for us to endure, the worst that they can do is only temporary. It will not last. The eternal victory has already been won. The final blow on the cross was already struck. At this point, we just wait. We wait and rejoice in Christ and we spread his good news and hopefully some of those enemies, they, they, the Holy Spirit works in their heart and converts them and brings them to the truth and that they are saved too. Thanks be to God if any of these enemies of Christ become followers of Christ. Thanks be to God. I hope they're all saved. But the worst they can ever do to you is only temporary. And the best that God can do to you has already been won for you on that cross. So Christian, you're in a war right now, but that battle was already won. Rejoice in Christ's victory and your forgiveness. <laughs> Take care.